Chapter Five of A Strange Disappearance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. A Strange Disappearance by Anna Catherine Green. Chapter Five. A New York Bell. Meanwhile, all our efforts to obtain information in regard to the fate or whereabouts of the missing girl had so far proved utterly futile. Even the advertisements inserted by Mrs. Daniels had produced no effect, and frustrated in my scheme, I began to despair, when the accounts of that same Mrs. Daniels' strange and unaccountable behaviour during these days of suspense which came to me through Fanny, the pretty housemaid at Mr. Blake's, whose acquaintance I had lately taken to cultivating, aroused once more my dormant energies and led me to ask myself if the affair was quite as hopeless as it seemed. If she was a ghost, was her final expression on the subject, she couldn't go perambulating this house more than she does. It seems as if she couldn't keep still a minute, upstairs and down, upstairs and down, till we're most wild, and so white as she is and so trembling. Why, her hands shake so all the time she never dares lift a dish off the table, and then the way she hangs about Mr. Blake's door when he's at home. She never goes in, that's the oddest part of it, but walks up and down before it, wringing her hands and talking to herself, just like a mad woman. Why, I have seen her almost put her hand on the knob twice in an afternoon, perhaps, then draw back as if she was afraid it would burn her, and if by any chance the door opened and Mr. Blake came out, you ought to have seen how she run. But it all means I don't know, but I have my imaginings and if she isn't crazy, why, etc., etc. In face of facts like these, I felt it would be pure insanity to despair. Let there be but a mystery, though it involved a man of the position of Mr. Blake and I was safe. My only apprehension had been that the whole affair would dissolve itself into an ordinary elopement or some such commonplace matter. Where, therefore, a few minutes later, Fanny announced that Mr. Blake had ordered a carriage to take him to the charity ball that evening. I determined to follow him and learn, if possible, what change had taken place in himself or his circumstances to lead him into such an innovation upon his usual habits. Though the hour was late, I had but little difficulty in carrying out my plan, arriving at the academy something less than an hour after the opening dance. The crowd was great, and I circulated the floor three times before I came upon him. When I did, I own I was slightly disappointed, for instead of finding him as I anticipated, the centre of an admiring circle of ladies and gentlemen, I espied him withdrawn into a corner with a bland old politician of the fifteenth ward, discussing, 
as I presently overheard, the merits and demerits of a certain Smith, who at that time was making some disturbance in the party. If that is all he has come for, thought I, I had better have stayed at home and made love to the pretty Fanny, and somewhat chagrined, I took up my stand nearby, and began scrutinizing the ladies. Suddenly I felt my heart stand still, the noise of voices ceasing the same instant behind me. A lady was passing on the arm of a foreign-looking gentleman, whom it did not require a second glance to identify with the subject of the portrait in Mr. Blake's house. Older by some years than when her picture was painted, her beauty had assumed a certain defiant expression that sufficiently betrayed the fact that the years had not been so wholly happy as she had probably anticipated when she jilted handsome Holman Blake for the old French count. At all events so I interpreted the look of latent scorn that burned in her dark eyes, as she slowly turned her richly bejeweled head towards the corner where the gentleman stood, and meeting his eyes, no doubt, bowed with a sudden loss of self-possession, that not all the haughty carriage of her noble form, held doubly erect for the next few moments, could quite conceal or make forgotten. She still loves him, I inwardly commented, and turned to see if the surprise had awakened any expression on his uncommunicative countenance. Evidently not, for the tough old politician of the fifteenth ward was laughing, at one of his own jokes probably, and looking up in the face of Mr. Blake, whose back was turned to me, in a way that entirely precluded all thought of any tragic expression in that quarter. Somewhat disgusted, I withdrew and followed the lady. I could not get very near. By this time the presence of a live countess in the assembly had become known, and I found her surrounded by a swarm of half-fledged youths. But I cared little for this. All I wanted to know was whether Mr. Blake would approach her or not during the evening. Tediously the moments pass, but a detective on duty, or on fancy duty, succumbs to no weariness. I had a woman before me worth studying, and the time could not be thrown away. I learned to know her beauty, the poise of her head, the flush of her cheek, the curl of her lip, the glance, yes, the glance of her eye, though that was more difficult to understand, for she had a way of drooping her lids at times that, while exceedingly effective, upon the poor wretch toward whom she might be directing that half-veiled shaft of light, was anything but conducive to my purposes. At length, with a restless shrug of her haughty shoulders, she turned away from her crowd of adorers, her breast heaving under its robing of garnet velvet, and her whole face flaring with a light that might mean resolve and might mean simply love. I had no need to turn my head to see who was advancing towards her, her stately attitude as countess, her thrilling glance as woman, 
betrayed only too readily. He was the more composed of the two, bowing over her hand with a few words I could not hear. He drew back a step and began uttering the usual commonplace sentiments of the occasion. She did not respond, with a splendor of indifference not often seen, even in the manner of our grandest ladies, she waited, opening and shutting her richly feathered fan, as one who would say, I know all this has to be gone through with, therefore I will be patient. But as the moments passed, and his tone remained unchanged, I could detect a slight gleam of impatience flash in the depths of her dark eyes, and a change come into the conventional smile that had hitherto lighted, without illuminating her countenance. Drawing still further back from the crowd that was not to be awed from pressing upon her, she looked around as if seeking a refuge. Her glance fell upon a certain window, with a gleam of satisfaction. Seeing they would straightway withdraw there, I took advantage of the moment, and made haste to conceal myself behind a curtain as near that vicinity as possible. In another instant I heard them approaching. You seem to be rather overwhelmed with attention tonight, were the first words I caught, uttered in Mr. Blake's calmest and most courteous tones. Do you think so? was the slightly sarcastic reply. I was just deciding to the contrary when you came up. There was a pause. Taking out my knife, I ripped open a seam in the curtain hanging before me, and looked through. He was eyeing her intently, a firm look upon his face that made its reserve more marked than common. I saw him gaze at her handsome head, piled with its midnight tresses amid which the jewels, doubtless of her dead lord, burned with a fierce and ominous glare at her smooth olive brow, her partly veiled eyes where the fire passionately blazed, at her scarlet lips trembling with an emotion her rapidly flushing cheeks would not allow her to conceal. I saw his glances fall and embrace her whole elegant form with its casing over ruby velvet and ornamentation of lace and diamonds and an expectant thrill passed through me, almost as if I already beheld the mask of his reserve falling, and the true man flash out in response to the wooing beauty of this full-blown rose, evidently in waiting for him. But it died away, and a deeper feeling seized me, as I saw his glances return unkindled to her countenance and heard him say in still more measured accents than before, Is it possible, then, that the Countess de Marat can desire the adulation of us poor American plebeians? I had not thought it, madam. Slowly her dark eyes turned towards him. She stood a statue. But I forget, he went on, a tinge of bitterness for a moment showing itself in its smile. Perhaps in returning to her own country, Evelyn Blake has so far forgotten the last two years as to find pleasure again 
in the toys and foibles of her youth. Such things have been, I hear, and he bowed almost to the ground in his half-sarcastic homage. Evelyn Blake, it is long since I have heard that name, she murmured. He could not restrain the quick flush from mounting to his brow. Pardon me, said he, if it brings you sadness or unwelcome memories, I promise you I will not so transgress again. A wan smile crossed her lips, grown suddenly pallid. You mistake, said she, if my name brings up a past laden with bitter memories and shadowed by regret. It also recalls much that is pleasant and never to be forgotten. I do not object to hearing my girlhood's name uttered by my nearest relative. The answer was dignity itself. Your name is Countess de Mirac. Your relatives must be proud to utter it. A gleam not unlike the lightning's quick flash shot from the eyes she drooped before him. It is Holman Blake I am listening to, said she. I do not recognize my old friend in the cool and sarcastic man of the world now before me. We often fail to recognize the work of our hands, madam, after it has fallen from our grasp. What? she cried. Do you mean, would you say that? I would say nothing, interrupted he calmly, stooping for the fan she had dropped at an interview which is at once a meeting and a parting. I would give utterance to nothing which would seem like recrimination. I, wait, suddenly exclaimed she, reaching out her hand for her fan with a gesture lofty as it was resolute. You have spoken a word which demands explanation. What have I ever done to you that you should speak? the word recrimination to me. What? You shook my faith in womankind. You showed me that a woman who had once told a man she loved him could so far forget that love as to marry one she could never respect for the sake of titles and jewels. You showed me. Hold, said she again, this time without gesture or any movement, save that of her lips grown pallid as marble. And what did you show me? He started, coloured profoundly, and for a moment stood before her unmasked of his stern self-possession. I beg your pardon, said he. I take back that word, recrimination. It was now her turn to lift her head and survey him, with glance less cool than his, but fully as deliberate. She looked at his proud head bending before her, studying his face, line by line, from the stern brow to the closely compressed lips, on which melancholy seemed to have set its everlasting seal, and a change passed over her countenance. Holman, said she, with a sudden rush of tenderness, if in the times gone by, we both behaved with too much worldly prudence for it now to be any great pleasure for either of us to look back. Is that any reason why we should mar our whole future by dwelling too long upon what we are surely still young enough to bury if not forget? 
I acknowledge that I would have behaved in a more ideal fashion if, after I had been forsaken by you, I had turned my face from society and let the canker worm of despair slowly destroy whatever life and bloom I had left. But I was young, and society had its charms, so did the prospect of wealth and position, however hollow they may have proved. You, who are the master of both this day, because twelve months ago you forsook Evelyn Blake, should be the last to reproach me with them. I do not reproach you. I only say, let the past be forgotten. Impossible, exclaimed he, his whole face darkening with an expression I could not fathom. What was done at that time cannot be undone. For you and me there is no future. Yes, he said, turning towards her, as she made a slight fluttering move of dissent. No future. We can bury the past, but we cannot resurrect it. I doubt if you would wish to, if we could, as we cannot. Of course you will not desire even to converse upon the subject again. Evelyn, I wanted to see you once, but I do not wish to see you again. Will you pardon my plain speaking, and release me? I will pardon your plain speaking, but her look said she would not release him. He seemed to understand it so, and smiled, but very bitterly. In another moment he had bowed and gone, and she had returned to her crowd of adoring sycophants. End of chapter 5